everybody. I'm really, really excited to air a very, very special episode today. And I'm so happy that you're here with me. As most of you know, who are listeners of the Going Beyond podcast, it's truly my passion and my joy to be able to pull and express conversations that are game changers, that shift the story, that bring about inspiration and make people feel like they're not alone because we're not. And this episode that we're airing today is super special to me because it's all of those things. For those of you that have been following me and hanging out, you know that spending time with women one-on-one in vulnerable conversations is a place that I thrive. It's a place that I want to be. And I feel somehow like I am living my mission on the planet when I'm in those conversations. What's super special is to be recognized for being that kind of person. I was recognized by my friend, Stephanie Carden. She is the founder of Social Fly, and she's one of the co-hosts of the Entrepreneurista podcast. We met, we were introduced by a mutual friend, and there was a connection. Stephanie, besides being a keen businesswoman, a fantastic podcaster, she is also a fighter. She is full of hope and inspiration, particularly for a community of women, which unfortunately is a much too large community um, of women who are struggling with infertility. This month is National Infertility Month, and Stephanie wanted to finally tell her story in a way that felt supportive, that felt honest and raw. And she wanted to do it on her own platform on the Entrepreneurista podcast. And she wanted to air it during the month, this month, the month that we actually outwardly honor the struggle that so many women go through simply to become mothers and the journey they go through along with their families and loved ones. Stephanie felt that she wanted it to be um, an interview style conversation. And when we met, it didn't take long for her to see that having that kind of conversation is where I come alive. And she asked me to be her guest interviewer on her podcast so she could tell her story. This was really, really quite special to me because um, it, again, is where I thrive. And two, Stephanie is just Wow, such a beacon of hope for so many. The story that she will tell in this episode isn't just that of trying to get pregnant, though that is a big part of the story, but what happened when she did and the layers and layers of challenge of community building to help her grow to help her get pregnant, stay pregnant, and eventually become a mother. Wow, I mean... I cried. I mean, I always cry, but I cried in this episode hearing Stephanie's tough, tough account of all of the pain, but also, wow, all of the beauty that can come from a challenge that is this heartfelt and this desired. Because as we know, all women that want to be mothers and put everything they have, their bodies, their minds, their finances, their hopes, their dreams 
into eventually having a baby, it's a fight like none other. So we decided that in honor of National Infertility Month, we would air this episode here on the Going Beyond podcast because it's a story that should be told. We need stories of hope at this time, especially at a time like this pandemic where if we wanted to, we could feel like the world was ending or our life is changing as we knew it or why are we here? But these stories remind us that the power of positive thinking, the power of leaning into your intuition and the power of hope is like no other. Again, I was so honored to be recognized for my love of sharing vulnerable, touching stories. I'm honored to be Stephanie's friend and to help her open up to her journey. And I know that you're going to really love this episode because there is so much in it. Enjoy, share it with the people in your life who have gone through this journey themselves or are going through it and know that you are not alone. Enjoy. Randy, I am so glad that we are here together today to finally share my story and what I went through over the past two plus years. I actually feel like hot inside of my body, even just starting to talk about it. And, you know, we met through our mutual podcast producer, Mark, who thought it would be great for us to connect. And when you came to my office a couple of months ago and, you know, started sharing more about yourself and your podcast and the stories that you've shared, it just... I knew in that moment that you were the one to share my story. And I'm just so glad to, to finally do this because I just, you know, I always say I just want to help as many people as possible through through what I went through. That means a lot to me. I'm really, really, really honored to sit here with you and be a part of the moment that you'll have to just tell your story because there's really nothing more powerful, nothing more healing for both parties that get to not only share, but listen. I would say that creating vulnerable, safe storytelling spaces is part of my reason why. It's part of why I have the podcast I have, the Going Beyond podcast. It's where I get to bring women on that I know have powerful stories to tell. And I'm always surprised by whatever comes out. It's always beyond, no pun intended, beyond what I assumed it would be. And similarly, when I met you, I really thought I was coming for, I don't know, some kind of business connection. And yeah, there is business and collaboration and support, which has been wonderful. But actually, when you meet honest kindred spirit, like, you know, there is more to it than just the business. And that's, I think, what you hope every meeting turns yeah. into, right? But not every meeting does just one of those instant instant connections Definitely. I also think there's that that mom connection too I think when you go through the journey whatever your journey is to to become a mom or become a parent like you just you just get it and you just are able to connect to people in in a different way but um absolutely I also I was reflecting with you recently that you know we were we were questioning why now you know why are you ready to tell your story now and being a mom myself of a four-year-old and an eight-year-old, having a little bit of an inflection point, um, being able to look back and see how time passes and what happens over time, you realize that 
as you creep closer to certain milestones and for you getting closer to that one year point of actually having your baby, you do start to reach a point of coming back to yourself in a certain kind of way and being ready to exhale a little bit and be ready to share what you've learned and what you've grown from. And your story is so intense and so powerful that um, it means somehow even more for you to be ready to really go back and talk about all of the moments and how it landed you here to this moment. So again, I just feel really privileged to be able to sit with you and and just roll with this moment. Yeah. So where, where do we begin? How do we even um, start this? <laughs> I guess maybe if you want to begin with the moment that you knew you were ready to start going for becoming you know, a parent, yeah. like you're, you're obviously a businesswoman. Um, you have a lot of things going on in your life. You've established a successful business and then you want to become a mother. So maybe reflecting a little bit on that moment and what you walked into. So I always knew I wanted to be a mom from the time I, from my longest childhood memories. Like I remember being, you know, five years old and playing with dolls and pretending that I was a mom. And um, my mom had her private practice, speech pathology practice out of our house back when I was younger. And I remember the parents would bring their kids for speech therapy and they would have younger siblings and they would be in our family room with their, the baby. And I would go downstairs and get to hold the little babies. And I just remember always just wanting to have a baby and to be a mom. So that was just always part of my DNA and who I was, even as I continued to get older and throughout my life, it was just everything I wanted, every choice I made in my career was about how can I work hard enough to set my life up to know that I can have a family and have the means to take care of a child. That was always my mentality my entire life. Um, and I know some people, you know, don't realize until later in life that they might want to start a family. I just knew from the time I was so, so young that I wanted to be a mom. So when my husband and I first got married, I remember I said to him, you know, my biggest fear in life is not being able to become a parent or having difficulty becoming a mom. And I had vocalized that to him. And he was like, no, I'm sure everything will be fine. But I've just always had these health challenges throughout my life. So I think something deep down told me that I might have a challenge too. But we started trying to get pregnant about a year, a year or so after we got married. And we, I actually, to rewind a little bit, I first went and did genetic testing and got blood work done because I have MS and I've had some health challenges in my life. I thought it would be a good idea to just do some initial testing. And at that point, I found out I was a pre-mutation carrier of something called Fragile X, if you're familiar with I what that is. I haven't heard of it, no. So Fragile X can cause mental disabilities for children and some other things as well. And it's only passed down from the mom. So it's not where you get genetic testing done and both the mom and the dad have to match. It's only passed down from the mom. So I got these lab results that I was a pre-mutation carrier. So I'm like, oh my gosh, what does this mean? Here we go. Here's the first navigating navigating the, the journey of trying to start a family. So we ended up meeting with a genetic specialist at Mount Sinai, did some additional blood work. And she said, you know, the chances are of it forming into a full mutation in the next generation are around 1%, maybe less than 1%. So 
You can try to get, you know, pregnant naturally. You can always do some early genetic testing once you're pregnant, but you can also go meet with a reproductive endocrinologist to see what it would be like if you wanted to do IVF and genetic testing just to see if you wanted to be sure that you definitely don't pass down that gene. So at this point, this is several years ago now, you know, I wasn't following any people who were talking about fertility on Facebook or Instagram. I didn't know anything about the whole fertility world. Um, I only knew of one friend who had gone through IVF. So I reached out to her. She was the only person that I knew. Now I feel like every single person I know yeah. has um, has gone through uh, fertility treatments. Um, so I reached out to her. She sent me to her doctor. I didn't do any research. Went to him. He shared more about IVF and doing IVF and was trying to what I call Sell IVF. Yeah. And something just didn't sit right with me. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to put all these hormones into my body. I don't want to do all of this. This is crazy expensive. Let's just try to get pregnant on our own and we'll just do early genetic testing. So brings me back to we start trying for about a year to get pregnant. Nothing happens. So a year later, I call up the same doctor, make an appointment. I go back. We meet with him and he almost like laughed at us like, oh, haha, you're back. I. And, and and so the the sort of strange messaging and negativity starts that's already. It, yes. And for me, I'm so desperate. Like I he this man is the one who can create this family that I can't create on my own. And I have to do whatever he says. And again, I hadn't done any research. I just went back to the same doctor. And which is so interesting because the type of person I am, I'm very type A. I research everything. I get all the information, but because this was just something I wanted more than anything in the world. And I was so vulnerable yeah. and it was so painful for me to deal with. I just wanted to trust that this doctor got my friend pregnant actually twice. So why wouldn't he be able to get me pregnant? So sure, he didn't have the best attitude. He didn't really treat me with that much respect, but he could do it. He was getting all these people in this waiting room pregnant. So he was the person we had to go to. So we leave that appointment and my husband is like, you want to go to that doctor because he knows me and I'm all about, you know, finding the right doctor who's the right fit and um, feeling comfortable with a doctor. And I'm like, yes, yeah, so you got my friend pregnant. Like, he's our answer. You were just focusing on the result, yes. not the experience yes. at that moment. Because I just wanted I just wanted a healthy baby. That's all I wanted. So in that appointment, he did an ultrasound and saw what he thought was a polyp. So he then sends me for um, an HSG test. And again, he hands me a piece of paper. The nurse hands me a piece of paper, says, here, go to this doctor now for an HSG test just to see what's going on, to be sure your tubes are clear. It looks like you have a polyp. Let's just see what's going on. Gives me this piece of paper, gives me no background information on what an HSG test is. So for those of you who are listening, it can be a very, very painful test and experience. And it's for me, I like to have information ahead of time. And I didn't really know what that test entailed. And when I say that test was more painful now that I've been through childbirth and childbirth, it absolutely was. It was horrible. And I was bleeding for days after I felt very sick. Now I'm calling the doctor's practice saying, I think like something happened. Something's not right. No one, people aren't, the doctor's not calling me back. I'm getting calls from nurses who I don't know there. It just was a terrible, terrible experience. So now the doctor calls me back three days later. I'm like, I'm sick from this test. I'm not feeling well. I had started doing research online that you were, you know, most places give you antibiotics before this test. And I'm very susceptible to infection. I'm like, what is going on? 
But somehow in my head, they're telling me he needs to come in and do an IUI in two days. And I still went in and did it against my your gut. My gut. Yeah. But I was just so desperate and just wanted to believe that these were the this was the doctor. This is the practice. They got my friend pregnant. This is what you have to do. So this was my your very, initiation. Yes. Yeah. So Wow. Well, I think what's really important about the the moment that you're talking about is how needy and emotional and vulnerable women can be in this moment and how the medical system and so many doctors, not all, but so many can really lose sight of the human being in front of them. I also hear you talking a lot about listening to your intuition and learning that lesson quickly. Yes. And this became a reoccurring theme, particularly in my fertility experience. So I still went in and did the IUI and had an infection. And I still did this IUI and I had a polyp. So like the whole thing didn't make sense. But I just went in and did the IUI because that's what they said to do. And um, the next week, got my period. The IUI didn't work. And that was the moment when I knew I'm not going back to this place. This this just does not make sense. Like what am, like what am I doing? And at that moment, actually it was about a week before I had breakfast with a friend in business and I shared what I was going through and he shared with me, "Oh, one of my good friends is actually an RE. He started CCRM fertility in New York City. Like I'm happy to make an intro." And this is before the negative pregnancy test. And I was like, "Well, I just had an IUI. I want to see if it works. Like God forbid it isn't, and then I'll take the intro." So the minute I got my period, like literally the minute I got my period, I went to my phone, I texted him. I said, can you make that intro? <laughs> yeah. And he sent me an email intro to a different doctor and the doctor responded within like 10 minutes. And I'm like, all right. OK, now we're talking. Yes. Yeah. Responsive. This is what I need. Made an appointment and then went in the next week to to meet with this other doctor and had an I did feel an instant connection with this doctor. Greg and I went to meet with him. We spent about an hour and a half sharing our history, you know, really now trying to understand the whole process. The two fertility clinics were like night and day. I, it was just a better vibe. Like I felt right. like, OK, I think we might be in the right place. And now. so is this where you ended up staying? This is. Okay. I did end up staying here. And look, it was not perfect. Now, I don't hear many perfect stories, to be honest, because it's not a perfect system. It's not. And, you know, I think we could have a whole other probably five hour long podcast about, uh, you know, the issues of fertility. Exactly. And there's there's so much that, you know, has to be fixed there. And my my good friend, Andrea, who who runs the the site and company Pregnantish, she's actually the you know, when I ended up publicly sharing my fertility journey, she gave me, you know, that platform and that voice to be able to share in her platform but she's someone who's really working on on fixing what's wrong in in the industry so there's definitely there's a lot there it's i mean it's such a mixture of just like putting business before people um not paying attention to the real humanity of the moments also i mean just i find it amazing that um in the medical profession you wouldn't come to understand a person's unique physical needs someone like yourself that had some other conditions that probably were worthy of mentioning. So, I mean, that's those kinds of things are always just so shocking. I know. And that's, you know, and we'll get to this, but I mean, the biggest lessons and what I've learned through the fertility process and what I share with so many who are going through it is if you're having issues getting pregnant and you end up at a reproductive doctor, there's some underlying issue of why you're not getting pregnant. Like, 
figure out what those issues are first and treat those before just jumping into treatments. Because if you can solve those, you actually might not need further treatments. It could right. be as, it could be as simple as taking certain supplements or just diagnosing a certain issue to know what you're treating before, you know, spending all of this time, money, resources, yeah. pain, agony, everything on going through yeah. fertility treatment. I know a lot of people that have gone in so many different directions, whether it's, you know, acupuncture, integrative nutrition or yep. all kinds of explorations to get to the root of how to find their their balance yeah. or their fertility or what what have you and my god you hear so many different stories and some successes and some non-successes but I agree with you worthy of exploring your your health first yes yes and oh and I did all of that I did you know acupuncture I did Every single thing that people would tell you to try to do to have all of these treatments work, Mm -hmm. I was... I was not going to leave anything untouched. If there was something that could help us get pregnant and stay pregnant, I was I was going to try that. But again, in the early days of starting my fertility treatments, I was still very naive and very vulnerable. And it actually wasn't until I publicly shared through Instagram and Facebook what we were going through that I felt this weight lift off of me. Like, Oh, I I can like come out of the closet really and share what I've actually been going through and not carrying this pain every day. And then it actually became empowering because it became this two way dialogue. It wasn't me just sharing, you know, going for another IUI today. Here's what's happening. It was, you know, asking for advice, sharing my story, you Mm -hmm. know, getting that feedback from people. And Randy, I would not have gotten pregnant or stayed pregnant if it was not for sharing on social media, on Facebook and on Instagram and connecting with certain people who ended up connecting me to other doctors who helped diagnose other issues, especially in the early days and during the fertility process, like my transfer probably would never have worked if I didn't go to a doctor through a friend that I met through Instagram, who's now a good friend. (laughs) Wow. Well, yeah, social media has a very interesting part of your story, which we're going to get to. Okay, so you stay with this doctor, you begin the process. How long did it take you to actually conceive? So the first step, um, the doctor said to us in that first meeting, you know, you have a polyp. It really doesn't make sense to start any treatments until you get rid of the polyp. So he's like, I can do the surgery or you can go to another specialist for it. Like he really wasn't giving us the hard sell on anything. What he said was this needs to be treated. I don't know why this other doctor tried to do an IUI when you have a polyp because you're probably not going to get pregnant if you have a uterine polyp. So I agreed with him like, yes, let's treat what's going on so I can get pregnant. He does a procedure to remove the polyps. And we thought I had one polyp because that's what it showed on the HSG test. He went into the procedure, came out of surgery, and he tells me that my entire uterine lining is covered in polyps and shows me these pictures. Wow. And I, I'm freaking out because I'm thinking, oh, my God. I, first of all, I don't know the first thing about, you know, what does that mean that your entire yeah. uterine lining is covered in polyps? I'm thinking, like, how do you know I don't have something more serious? And he did say, you know, we sent everything out to be biopsied, but it's probably fine. So they took everything out. He took he took everything out, and then he sent it out to be biopsied. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, does this mean that I could have, you know, cancer? My aunt passed away from ovarian cancer, so all of these things are going through my mind. Like, what does this mean? And, like, um. Is something terribly wrong with me and I'm never going to be able to become a mom? And he assured me everything's probably fine. We're just sending it out just to be sure. So I get a call about a week or a week and a half later. And he says, you know, sent the biopsy out. It came back that you have something called endometritis. 
So, you know, when a doctor's calling you, I mean, I'm sitting in my office and yeah. now I'm Googling as he's typing. I'm typing yeah. endometritis. Like, what is endometritis? I've heard of endometriosis, but, yeah. I but I actually don't even really know what endometriosis is at this point. So he explains that it's an infection. He's going to call in 10 days of doxycycline. So again, I say, okay, he's the doctor. He knows 10 days of doxycycline. Okay. I just listened to what he says. I didn't actually do a lot of research because I just trusted what he said was going to solve the problem. Take the doxycycline that month. We start the process and do an IUI. And I just assume I took the doxycycline. No more infection because that's what happens when you take antibiotics, right? No. No. So we do an IUI. Doesn't work. The next month, we do another IUI. It doesn't work. I say to the doctor, do you think I might still have this infection? No, no, no. Maybe you took 10 days of antibiotics. You don't. And I say, okay. Another IUI. You know how this story goes. Yeah. So we do four we do four IUIs that don't work. And I had said before the last IUI, I said, can we be sure I don't have this infection? Because I just have this feeling, like I know my body. I just have this feeling I still have this infection. And that's why I'm not getting pregnant. Because at this point now, I had started to do like real research on what endometritis was. So he said, you know, it looks like we're going to have to do IVF. So let's start the process of IVF. And when we do your egg retrieval, we'll do another biopsy and you'll see you probably don't have this infection. So now we start the process of IVF and you probably know where I'm going with this story. We do the egg retrieval, which we had a very successful egg retrieval. And we do the biopsy at the retrieval. And yes, I get a call a few days later. I still have endometritis. Oh, my gosh. So at this point, and I have been now sharing my whole story on Instagram with everyone. And I met this other woman who had reached out to me or someone connected me to her. And and she had very similar story. And um, she had done all of this extensive research on endometritis. She's sharing all this research with me. And she, I believe it was her that said you need... Um, doxycycline plus now I'm blanking on the other antibiotic that I was on but I was on two very strong antibiotics and asked for it for three weeks so I called my doctor and I said I want these two antibiotics I want them for three weeks and this is what I'm taking and at that point I was just so empowered by by that point yeah. and I just knew I, I finally had that the ability to listen to my intuition mm. and speak up to the doctor because I was paralyzed. Yeah. I was paralyzed for so long well, with these doctors. that's what fear will do. Yeah. And they, and I, I'm not trying to demonize medical doctors. There are amazing doctors out there, but, but it does reveal how that level of fear will silence you. And, and it does become a power dynamic. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, in, in a way, it's amazing that you were able to find your voice as quickly as you did, even though it probably felt like a very long time. It was a, it was a very long, yeah. way too long. Well, <laughs> you know, in my case, I will say, I don't feel like I really found my voice until my son was like a few years old. Mm. So I feel like credit to you. You hadn't even actually had a baby yet mm. and you found your voice. <laughs> <laughs> so... It's like, you know, I, I feel like I have my voice, you know, in every other aspect of my life, but it was because all I wanted yeah. was this to be was a the mom and this child. And yes, and yeah. these dot like my fate of everything I want in my life is in this person's hands. Right. So how dare I tell them what to do or what to give me? I didn't go to medical school, but guess what? There's a lot of information Online, And I'm not talking about like a simple Google search, like anyone can go research journal articles and read articles on PubMed. You know, you don't have to have a degree as a doctor to read a journal article and understand what medications can work 
and not work. And you shouldn't have to feel intimidated by sharing that information with a doctor, which I will say, you know, with this doctor, I was sharing you know, I read this about endometritis and he did send back an email to me at one point during this process that was just, and I won't share exactly what he said, but it was not okay. And it put me down as an advocate for myself and as a woman. And it, you know, put me into a little bit of a a (laughs) frenzy and to the point where I all I had left to do at this point in our fertility process was to go in and get a transfer. And I just had to block out my feelings and go in and do it because I was so upset by something that he said to me. Mm, You're not going to say exactly what it was. And it it wasn't even you know what? It wasn't even the part about it being sexist. It was. But it was about putting down my ability to research and find out the information and advocate for myself. And look, he in his mind was basically telling me, just relax, let me be the doctor, you just go relax and, you know, keep your mind busy with something else. Right. But it's like, no. I, those, that level of detail in particular mm-hmm. kind of adds a whole other yeah. feeling to it. He could have he could have said, listen, I'm your doctor. I trust me, you know, try to relax. I'm going to really. But instead, he went yeah. to the other level of being offensive. Yeah. yeah. I feel you. Okay. So... You know, something I learned through that experience and I've, you know, have an incredible therapist too, which I feel everyone needs a good therapist. (laughs) Yeah, everyone does need a good therapist. And, you know, after that experience with, with this doctor who now had my beautiful embryos in his freezer and now I'm upset about this event that has just happened and she shared with me and something that I carry with me every single day is, you know, Doctors and people, everyone, we're all trying to do the best that we can with the knowledge and information that we have. He was doing the best he could do in that moment. He wasn't trying to upset me. That wasn't his goal. That's just how he happens to communicate and carry himself. And it doesn't make it okay. But I have just now learned to, you know, and especially through everything that then later happened in the pregnancy and, you know, dealing with all different types of doctors through, through our journey there, these doctors are just trying to do the best they can do with what they know. They can. And I also think that, I mean, this is just like my own statement. Yeah. I think that the medical profession doesn't receive the education and the support to handle the humanness yeah. of what they're really dealing with. So if you imagine that there is probably like 150 Stephanies that that doctor is dealing with in a given week. Well, a person might know how to do a transfer But to be able to handle fear, emotion, a woman who's trying to find her voice, I'm sure there are women that are crippled by anxiety, but to be able to hold space for that part of it probably isn't something that uh, a fertility specialist is taught. They're just a person who knows a science. And that's really tough. It kind of reminds me of... Well, now we're making all kinds of commentary, but it all feels related. It's like when you go to a hospital to visit a sick person and their dinner arrives on a tray and it's like frozen crap. And I'm like, this is a place where people are supposed to heal. How is it that the food is this level of zero nutrients? <laughs> and but, but it feels related to me because it's like, where is the humanity? Yeah. Where's the thought in any of this? Yeah. It's very difficult to swallow. Yeah. 
So where were we now? Okay, oh my so gosh. You, so you, um, you had to sort of swallow the fact that you were spoken to in a way that was really, really offensive and inappropriate, especially the fact that you were finally gaining a sense of your own inner wisdom. Yeah. But you had to kind of keep your eye on the ball and and go forward. Yeah. So you did that. And then what happened? Did that, went in for, oh, wait, let me rewind just for one moment, because before we did the transfer, that's when we went to see the specialist who did a lot of blood work and testing and put me on the right protocol for the actual transfer. And that was something that I'd pushed for with my doctor for a while saying, you know, I have autoimmune issues. I have other things going on. Like, shouldn't we be sure there's nothing else going on before we just jump in and do this transfer. And, and the transfer is when you already have a fertilized embryo yeah. and that gets placed in your uterus. Exactly. Okay. So, so everyone yes, understands. Yes, yes. So now we had a three-month, you know, window or delay between doing the egg retrieval on July 23rd, which was my birthday, which was very... It all worked out oh, that I way, guess. yes. Mm-hmm. And then, so my birthday was July 23rd. We ended up having 23 fertilized embryos. What? So the number 23 kept coming up, which was... I wow. still be- I believe in all the signs yes, in the universe yes. there. I do too. And then we found out I still had the infection, went on the antibiotics. Then I went to the other doctor where I had blood work done and found out I was positive for MTHFR and a few other things and went on another protocol and treatment leading up to the transfer. So now we're three months after this, this uh, egg retrieval. And it was probably at the time it felt like the longest three months ever because all I wanted to do was just do put this embryo yeah. me and yeah. just you know get, get the show on the road after after all of these months and years of just just longing for this moment so now um you know I did acupuncture and did everything you could put he was eating all the pineapple you could imagine and try I went gluten-free and dairy-free and trying to reduce all the inflammation in my body and was doing everything I needed to do to prepare my body and my mind um so October 24th of 2018 we had our embryo transfer and you know just went in that day with just a positive mindset and an open heart and I was just ready for this to work and I just I knew it was going to work I just believed in my heart like this was going to be it so four days after this embryo transfer I just had this feeling that it worked and then I should take a pregnancy test, even though you're not, you don't go in for like 10 days after to yeah. get what's called a beta. But I just had this feeling I was pregnant. So my husband leaves to go out and, and get some food and I just sneak to the bathroom. I take a pregnancy test and all of a sudden I see a faint line. And this is four days after and this is not normal. So I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I'm pregnant. And my husband walks in the the door when he gets home from getting the food. And I just blurt out to him, it works. I'm pregnant. And he just walks to the kitchen table and ignores me. He's like, what are you talking about? You're not supposed to go get a blood test for a week and a half. And I'm like, no, but I took a test. And he's like, no, you weren't supposed to take a test. The doctor said, don't take a test. And I said, I don't care what the doctor said, as you know. I took a test. I'm definitely pregnant. So I take a picture of it. I email it to the doctor and he says, well, there's only one way for that to be positive. So he validated that that I was pregnant. And, you know, this was what was the dynamic with my husband, you know, over our fertility care. You know, he was always about listen to the doctor, listen to the doctor. And the theme eventually did change where now he knows that I know my body best and maybe the doctors don't always have all the answers. Yeah. 
Um, so it was confirmed. I went in for blood work then two days later and I had a beta done. My levels were already pretty high. And I remember I said to my husband, I was like, I have a feeling the embryo split. He was like, why do you think that? I was like, I just have this feeling. And also my numbers are really high. And I was doing a little Googling. <laughs> so, you know, a few weeks later, we went in for our first ultrasound and that very first ultrasound, we just saw one sack and then it was actually the second ultrasound. I remember seeing the tech and I was looking at the screen and I saw two sacks. I'm getting hot as I'm talking about this because I'm just remembering this moment and my husband's sitting behind me. And when you have these ultrasounds, it's usually the tech, there's a technician doing the ultrasound, the doctor comes in after. So she's like asking these weird questions. Can I ask a question? Oh, yeah. So do you, when you are, this is considered high risk because of all the fertility treatments. Is that true? And so there's sort of is there more medical involvement at this point when you're in the early stages of a pregnancy? Yeah. So when you yeah. do IVF, you definitely have more ultrasounds in the beginning. Okay. Um, for me, and I had a lot of bleeding in the beginning, so I ended up going in quite frequently. Mm -hmm. um, but you definitely have more ultrasounds. I know most women who get pregnant naturally, I know my friends like don't go into like 10 weeks, eight weeks pregnant, 10 weeks pregnant. Yeah. 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 Early. Yeah. You have like one to yeah. confirm a heartbeat. Yeah. And then... It's not for a while yeah. that you see that first. Yeah. More. Yeah. But I, I mean, I was going in, I feel like <laughs> I was in there like every day, every week. But yeah. I had these bleeding scares, too. So there are these two sacks on the screen. And this doctor, she says to me, you know, and at that point, there was one heartbeat on one and there wasn't on the other because it was still very early. I think I was six weeks at that point, six and a half weeks. And um, she said, you know, at this point, like, we don't know if it's a viable twin pregnancy. You put in one embryo, so the embryo definitely split. Right. We'll just have to see over the next few weeks what happens. So it was actually the day after that appointment that I started gushing blood and I thought I was miscarrying. And then this oh happened God. again at about you're, like your your anxiety levels and nervous system. Like <laughs> I, I'm like having my own just like experiences. Just, it, it just yeah. And I know with this because I know the story, I know yeah. we're like not even halfway through. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God. It's a lot. It was, you know, it was really just one, one, thing, one thing after, after the another. other. I mean, and I won't get into all the details of the bleeding scares, but I mean, each one was like a dramatic mo course. lifetime movie. Yes. And I felt like I was living in this bad movie. Over there was only over. a two week period from like 14 weeks to 16 weeks when I enjoyed my pregnancy. And actually from 15 weeks to 16 weeks, I got, I was actually sick, like had the worst cold virus ever that winter. So I had one week from 14 to 15 weeks of this pregnancy that was normal. Wow. So I had said to our fertility doctor when we, you know, found out we were now pregnant with twins, which I was so happy about. I'm like, this is amazing. We're only going to have to go through this once. We're going to have two. We can just be, you know, done, have our instant family. Like, this is, you know, the universe at work. This is incredible. Yeah, your instant family that took years. Yes. <laughs> so um, I'd said to our fertility doctor, I said, "Who's who do I go to? Who's the best high-risk twin doctor? Who do I go to in, in the city? And he said, you know, God forbid anything bad happens in your pregnancy. The doctor you'll end up at is at Columbia, Dr. Miller at Columbia. He's an expert on, you know, complicated twin pregnancies. So you might as well just go to him from the beginning. So 
called, got an appointment and started seeing Dr. Miller from about, I think it was like 11, 12, my 11 or 12 week appointment is when we went there. So we went for that first appointment and everything looked great. Saw, you know, both their heartbeats, their, you know, hanging out together, like everything looks really great. And I remember in that first appointment, Dr. Miller shared with me, you know, I have to share with you what all the complications can be in a um, mono die twin pregnancy. And what that means is both babies were in one placenta, but there were two separate sacs. So it's called mono die. And he started sharing things like twin to twin transfusion and cords being placed in the wrong place. And I remember almost similar to how I feel in this moment, we're now just getting really hot. And I, but I, I did start like tearing up because I didn't want to hear anything negative, yeah. like anything negative that could be out there. Like that was not happening to us. I'm only putting positive vibes into the universe, not happening. So I did not research anything. I went home, went about, went about our day and was just going to enjoy this pregnancy. How could any of that stuff happen? We had already been through so much, right? Like why, why would that ever happen? Yeah. So a few weeks later, we go back for our 16 and a half week appointment, which was to be the early anatomy scan. And we, the, the tech said this scan was going to take a while for a few reasons. There's twins. So it's, you know, double time for the scan and they have to look at every single part of the anatomy to be sure everything is developing well. And my doctor shared with me a few weeks prior that he wasn't going to be at this appointment because he had something at the hospital that day that it would he would send another doctor to review the scan that day. So she finishes the scan. It's about an hour and a half. And all of a sudden, Dr. Miller walks into the room. And when I see him walk in, my heart just sinks because I just knew in that moment, like, why is he here? Like he told me he wasn't going to be here. Mm -hmm. And I remember he just walks in. He's like, Hey, I was like, you're not supposed to be here. And he said, Hey, well, I just need to come talk to you about a few things. I need to do your scan right now. And I just could not breathe in that moment. Like I, everything inside of me felt like it was just ending because I just knew something was terribly wrong. And I just started crying. And I kept saying to him, like, please, like, tell me what's wrong. Tell me what's wrong. And he wouldn't say anything. He's like, I just need to take a look. Let me just take a look. Let me just take a look. And that was probably the, I say the worst few minutes of my life, but then I'm thinking about everything that happened next. So there was a lot of really bad, worst moments. And he said, you know, it looks like you do have the start of twin to twin transfusion, but why don't you get dressed, come back to my office and we're going to talk about everything. So my husband and I go back into his office and he starts, you know, drawing things on a piece of paper. And I'm just like not comprehending anything because how can you in those moments? Like you're being told you have this horrible, your children have this horrible disease that your options at that point are to terminate one of your children to try to save the other children or to do an emergency surgery. Like, what do you do? So twin to twin transfusion is where the two babies blood circulates back and forth yes. to each other they, because there's one placenta. And they, they start sharing this blood supply. It essentially gets crossed. And what they can do to try to stop it is do this laser ablation surgery where they go in through your belly, through your placenta with a laser, and you're awake for it. They numb you and try to cauterize these vessels to stop the twin-to-twin transfusion. So, But there's no guarantee that either twin can survive. Yep. 
he was just, you know, giving us statistics in that moment. And I don't remember what the exact numbers were, but it was something like, you know, 70, there's a 70 percent chance if you do the surgery that at least one twin will make it. There's a or maybe it was 80 percent or 60 percent. I don't know what the percentages were. He was throwing out all these percentages. And I remember I kept saying, well, what would you do? And he would say, you know, like, I can't tell you what to do. I can just tell you, you know, based on what I see and based on numbers. And, you know, here's where I'll tell you that something that I have learned in business that really helped me in this moment was never make a very important decision in a split second, in, in a moment, without mm-hmm. doing research yeah. and collecting as much information as possible. So we left that appointment. And of course, I was actually supposed to go speak at an event at MasterCard that day. And I kept saying to my doctor, my husband, I'm supposed to be getting picked up from here right now to go to go speak somewhere. And then my doctor was like, I don't think that's a good idea. So, right. so, the, <laughs> so the option to do nothing was not an option. The option to do nothing would mean we would likely lose both of them. Okay. So In utero? Yes. Okay. So we that was an option, but that's not really an option. Okay. So the option at that point was we can terminate one of the twins to try to save the other twin because they can they still can't guarantee that would work or we can try to do the surgery to save both of them. And I remember I said, you know, like is there a chance the surgery can work to save both of them? And he said, there's a chance. And I remember his voice didn't seem that hopeful because our twin Emmy who ended up not making it after the surgery, her cord was attached at the wrong place and her blood flow was already starting to go in reverse. So they were already able to see which twin had the stronger flow, I guess you could say. Um, And had the better chance, yes. So I can see that. Okay. So... I we left that appointment. I was just in in shock. And I again, because I hadn't done any research about twin to twin transfusion a few weeks prior when he told us about this. Now I knew I had to do my research. But the first thing I did was I went to Facebook and I typed in TTTS and twin to twin transfusion, just as I did, you know, going through fertility treatments. I joined Facebook groups. I joined this TTTS Facebook group and was connected immediately. I shared my story and what was going on. And the women in this group responded to me within seconds. Wow. People offering their advice, information from their experiences and what they went through. And this one woman sent me a DM and said, I have to connect you to this woman, Carolyn. She also went to the same doctor at Columbia. Like, I'm sure she'd be willing to speak to you. So within like 12 hours, I was on the phone with this woman. Wow. And she and we, we still like talk and text all the time. Like she's and we've met a few times. She's absolutely incredible. But she took us back to that moment when she was in that same room with Dr. Miller in this like boardroom looking room. And I said, I'm like, how do you make, how did you make these decisions? Like, how did you figure out what to do? And she luckily is two healthy, beautiful twin boys that she fought so hard for, but she walked us through the surgery and what to expect. And just, she was absolutely, absolutely incredible. And so many of the women I met through this group, I ended up having calls with Mm. so they could advise me and help me understand what to do. Wow. Can you imagine this whole experience without that level of support? No, I'm, I'm telling you, I, I probably would not have my daughter. I know I would not have my daughter without these communities. I wouldn't. 
Well, it's interesting because I just take, take a pause to reflect on this because so, so much of the isolation that we feel, um, I would say everybody in some way, shape or form, but definitely women as they become mothers, I think is because we don't live in the village anymore. Mm-hmm. We don't live in, you know, the apartment buildings like, you know, my family grew up in Brooklyn. Um, we don't have our aunties and our sisters and our first cousins to hold space for us. Yeah. We just don't. But then you think about how much we can criticize social media and it it is a bit of an addiction and we do have some issues. Um, but wow, what a powerful thing to be able to find your support and find your community and actually to go as far as to say, I don't think I would have had my daughter if it wasn't for these connections. Yeah. Wow. So thank God for social media. Um, And I don't want it to be lost about how interesting it is that you have a social media agency, like that's your business and you've conducted business, but actually you're now experiencing its power um, for positive, which is amazing. Um, So I just want to just do a quick, quick recap. So we've gone through basically years of infertility, the journey of finally getting to the root of what was ailing to prevent you from getting pregnant. And finally you get pregnant. You're having twins only to discover at about 16 weeks that there's this rare issue with the the babies exchanging blood between each other. And you have this profound and difficult decision to make of how to move forward to hopefully save both of them, one of them. And it's one of the biggest decisions of your life, if not the biggest. And I think it's just a really important moment to just take a breath and just pause on that because, wow, not all of us have to make decisions like that in our lives where we know our entire future, the future of our family is truly on the line. Yeah, I remember just saying over and over again, like no one should ever have to make these type of decisions. Yeah. It's just so horrible to... Like, how do you how do you decide, you know, how do I choose to end the life of one of my children? I just I couldn't wrap my head around how anyone can make these choices. And I would say to these women who I was talking to on the phone who I met through these Facebook groups, like, how do you make these how do you make these choices? And I think I even said to the doctor, too, like, how do your patients make these decisions? Like, what do they think about? What do they do? Like, how do you figure it out? And I mean, I think it just goes back to like trusting in your heart and your gut and your intuition and what you feel like, you know, deep down what the right answer is. And we all have unique abilities to hear that we come from different value systems. Mm -hmm. We have a sense of what we can and cannot handle. And that's our own unique answer. I've, I've learned that, too. Yeah, no, absolutely. We went back for another appointment that Friday. And after that appointment, we knew there was urgency there and we made the decision we had to do the surgery. So that Monday we were scheduled for the surgery to try to save both of our babies. And that was on February 4th of 2019. Wow. And so what did you have a sense of in terms of now that you agreed to go forward, what the process would be like from there? So it's really all such a blur because, you know, I'm going to share now, obviously, all the complications that happen after the surgery. But 
I don't really remember being told Mm. of what could happen. And when you're going through such a traumatic time and having to make these decisions no one should ever have to make like you're something happens I think to your brain to protect you yeah survival yes and (laughs) it's really yes exactly it's it's hard it's hard to remember so and again that's your brain protecting you from everything that yeah your brain is protecting itself from the pain yeah so you know we have the surgery that Monday and The surgery was actually extremely traumatic because when I went into the operating room and I'm I'm already extremely nervous and I was, you know, being prepped for the surgery in the same area where women were having C-sections and were being brought into recovery and their babies are coming out and I'm laying there. Oh my God. Why is this freaking me out? Why do they? Yeah. So that, that's something I've already talked to the hospital there that needs to be changed because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of women who are going in for surgeries while they're pregnant. And it's the same area where, where you're being brought out after you have a baby after a C-section babies are being brought in over there. So I'm hearing these babies crying and I'm just laying there before the surgery just tears strolling down my face because that's all I wanted. And, yeah. just, and, and here like, you are yet again. I'm trying to save these babies yeah. right now. So I, <gasps> I go in for the surgery and I tell the anesthesiologist, you know, my IV, it's really bothering me. Like it's, it's really burning. It's hurting. Like I feel, I feel like something's wrong with it. So the anesthesiologist is like, oh, let me just put, I'm going to put some lidocaine through your IV. I didn't know what lidocaine was. He Put some put some lidocaine through the IV, and all of a sudden, I have this reaction. What I which I didn't know was to the lidocaine, but I couldn't breathe. So now I'm laying on the operating table, and I had already had the epidural because they were or the spinal tap because they were numbing me. I was going to be awake for the surgery. And now I can't breathe and I'm hyperventilating and I'm saying like, don't, I'm like, Dr. Miller, don't start the surgery. Like I thought I was dying. And in that moment was one of the scariest moments of my entire life because it was everything going on in my head was all I've ever said to my husband was, I don't want to die before I'm a mom. And here I am thinking I'm about to die on this operating table. And because I'm numb, I didn't even know if he had already started the surgery. And here I can't breathe and I feel like I'm going to die. Oh my God. And Let alone what the panic must have been doing to you. just... That was the worst part of the of the surgery was before now they even started because of that experience. I had just had a reaction to this medication. So they put a mask on me, have me take deep breaths and just have to let this lidocaine get through my system. Now I know I have reactions to lidocaine. So that was not a great way to learn. But um, now I have to lay there for an hour to have the, this procedure. And I and my husband couldn't be in there. The fellow, the resident, I just held his hand. I was squeezing his hand the entire surgery and he could see the screen and there was a drape up and I was just having him talk to me. And he could see the babies on the screen because they put a camera through the like with the laser. So I was like, just tell me they're okay." And I was just having him talk to me to just try to keep me calm through the surgery. So we finished the surgery and Dr. Miller says, you know, there's still two heartbeats. And I was just praying and staying positive that they would that 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 would that they were both going to make it. So so the surgery basically did just in like one sentence, like it did what? It um, stopped the twin to twin transfusion. So the laser was cauterizing, cauterizing, I believe that's how you say it, the blood vessels to stop the blood flow from being shared. Okay. So now I'm wheeled back into uh, recovery. 
And now I have to spend the night at the hospital to be able to go back up to have an ultrasound the next day to check on the babies to see how they were doing. And I knew through, you know, the women who I met through this Facebook group that those first, you know, 12 hours are the most critical of how they're going to do because it's a very traumatic surgery for, for both of them. Um, so we went up the next morning at about nine in the morning and, um, the tech starts, the technician starts doing the ultrasound and I see her go check, you know, just to see if there's heartbeats on both of them first. And at this point now I'm 17 and a half weeks. I've had so many ultrasounds. Like I feel like I can basically read the ultrasound and see what's going on. So I knew right away when she went over to, to Emmy and I, I saw there wasn't a heartbeat there right away. And I just started crying and saying, you know, we we tried like we tried everything we could to save her and at least we tried and you know we didn't make that choice to to end her life that was up to her if she was able to to fight and and make it through the procedure and we we tried we tried everything and i have peace knowing that we did whatever we could to try to save her and give her the best chance. And now we just had to hope that Molly could keep fighting and could could make it through through the rest of the pregnancy. OK, so there are so many questions like understand the emotional state of what it means to have inside your body a living baby and a non-living baby. Yes, it's so complex Um to imagine how to both be inspired by what's possible and yet clearly in grief at the same time. I don't even know where to go with it, but just to highlight that that is in fact happening all at once. And most people don't realize this because I, again, I didn't know any of this until I was going through the experience myself is that when you do lose a baby during your pregnancy, if you're pregnant with multiples, you would think that if you have a baby that's not alive live inside of you, you can get an infection and die. And if there is another living baby inside of you, somehow your body protects you and, and knows and you're able to carry both a living baby and a baby that's not alive at the same time t- until the end of the pregnancy. So you, okay, so at this point, they inform you that Emmy is gone, but Molly is with us. Yeah. And you're told what what do you do now go home and just you know take it easy you'll come back in I believe at that point he had said every week I think it was every week at that point just for scans to see how she's doing and um you know women in the Facebook group were like you had surgery you have to win a twin transfusion like you need to be on you know at least modified bed rest taking it very very easy my doctor was like you know just you pretty much go back to your normal routine. Um, But we never made it back to the normal routine because I was now only home for about a day and a half. And I started leaking what I found out was amniotic fluid. So now a day and a half later, I start leaking fluid. I take a picture. I text my doctor and he says, come to the hospital right now. So we go to the hospital. And this is about 17 and a half. This is now, yeah, 17 and a half weeks. And we go to the hospital and he wasn't there. This is now nighttime. And they tell me at, you know, in triage, like, it seems like you're ruptured, like you're it tested positive for amniotic fluid. And again, like, I don't even remember being told that that could happen. I, I'm sure I was, but, you know, through everything, 
I didn't know. I didn't right. remember that from the surgery, you can rupture. Rupture and that's the amniotic sac. R- rupture, the, rupture the sac. So they said, you know, you're probably going to go into labor in the next, you know, 24 to, to 48 hours. Like this is probably going to be the, the end of your pregnancy. And I'm just hysterical. Like, how can how can this be? Yeah. How can this happen? Like, we've already been through so much. We've made it so far. Like, how can this be? So I'm in the hospital now. And of course, I go to my Facebook, Facebook group. group. <laughs> yeah. And I post exactly what's going on in real time. And someone in the group comments, you need you're ruptured. You need to join the P-Prom group um, for women who rupture. And to get all the information from there. And she had something similar happen. She ruptured from her um, twin to twin transfusion surgery. So then she joined the P-Prom group. And that's when she got all the resources about P-Prom, which is premature rupture of your membranes. So I joined this P-Prom group and I post what happens. And instantly I have replies from everyone saying, if there's a heartbeat, there's hope. Babies can survive without amniotic fluid. And I'm like, what? How is this possible? Like, I'm being told in the hospital right now that my pregnancy is about to end. And actually, the next day, I'm being told, you know, even if you don't go into labor, most people at this point typically will terminate your pregnancy because babies need amniotic fluid to survive. And I'm like, well, all of these people in the Facebook group are telling me there's thousands of people in here that their babies made it without amniotic fluid. So... What am, what am I supposed to believe? What's happening? And they were giving, they were explaining, you know, the whole procedure and what you would have to do to, to end a pregnancy and hearing about, you know, if I did continue with the pregnancy, her lungs would never develop because yeah. we were so early and babies need fluid from 18 to 23 weeks to develop their lungs. And she was going to have this horrible quality of life, like every single horrible thing. And I, again, I just like couldn't comprehend everything and I hadn't gone into labor. So I said, I want to go, I want to go home. (laughs) So I went home and then another day later, now I start like leaking like blood and it's looking like not good. So now I'm, you know, freaking out like, okay, am I going into labor? Cause I was cramping, leaking blood now, message my doctor. Now I'm back at the hospital. Now I spend another few days in the hospital this time. And again, I'm hearing the same thing. Most people terminate at this point. You're at a very high risk of getting an infection once you're ruptured, which is true. Um, and, but again, I'm in this Facebook group and I'm talking to these women every single day. And, you know, I'm, I'm sharing pictures of like what it's looking like, everything that I'm leaking. And they're like the same thing with us. But we made it till 28 weeks, 30 weeks, 33 weeks. Like your baby can make it if you do all of these different things. There's no guarantee, but you can at least try. So I tell them after a few days, okay, I want to go home. Like I'm not ending this pregnancy. And this now went on for a few weeks. I was going in for twice a week appointments. And every week I was being told, you know, you still have an opportunity to end your pregnancy in New York state. You can end a pregnancy till a certain number of weeks. And finally, it's 21 weeks. My husband says, we're not ending this pregnancy. Like, what do we do now? So our doctor says, you know, there is a program here at um, Columbia called the Comfort Care Program. I'm going to introduce you to the head neonatologist. We meet with this woman, Dr. Paravicini, who we call our guardian angel. And she finally was the first doctor that gave us hope and said, if you can hold on till at least 28 weeks pregnant, you know, we have a level four NICU. I've seen these babies without amniotic fluid make it. And these OBs, they don't know everything. They treat the moms. Their job is to make sure the mom stays safe. There's liability that's involved. Oh, it's always. And yeah. 
if you can make it to at least 28 weeks, she was giving me all these different percentages. So now I had in my head, okay, just got to make it to 28 weeks. Right. So the next step, though, at this point was actually making it till 23 weeks. Then I could go inpatient to be monitored. So we made the decision. We were part of this comfort care program, checked into the hospital at 23 weeks for what I wanted to be at least a 10 week to 11 week stay. And comfort care, to be clear, this is um, a portion of the Columbia Hospital where women who are in very high risk situations and are pregnant. Where they where you don't know if there's going to be a good outcome It's a special program that allows families to be part of that program where you can still deliver the baby. There may be a good outcome. In many cases, they know that there's going to be a life-limiting condition and that the baby may not survive. And they want to give every baby and family the the best quality of life, even if it's a short life for for the child. So they have a very beautiful, incredible program that I'm now very involved in through through my experience because of oh. what they were able to to do for us. And we, thank goodness, had you know a a beautiful outcome. But we did not know every single day I was in the hospital. We had no idea what the actual outcome was going to be. Right. I just believed in my heart that. Molly was going to make it like I just knew like if she was holding on even with no fluid and I'd go up for these scans twice a week and they were the most depressing things ever because there's no fluid I couldn't even see the baby I couldn't even see her you couldn't no because you need fluid in an ultrasound that's what makes you able to see the baby in an ultrasound okay so I mean they could see enough of her her growth and her vitals yes because you could like see kind of an outline i'll show you what some of these ultrasounds look like and sometimes there'd be like a little tiny like pocket of fluid like a centimeter of fluid and when i say a centimeter pocket i mean like a little droplet of fluid not like the entire right you know ultrasound area looking like there there's fluid in it so again you know i'm talking to these women on facebook every single day and i'm understanding their ultrasounds and what they've learned and i remember someone saying you know if they're there's, if it looks like there's fluid by their face, that's a good thing because then they might be swallowing the fluid and then their lungs are developing. So every ultrasound, I'm like, can I make out her mouth to see if there's a tiny little bit of fluid there? Wow. And I remember at one point I did see a tiny little bit of fluid by her face. And I said to the doctor, she's definitely swallowing that fluid. Like, she's going to be great. And he's like, OK. You know what's I- interesting? <laughs> I'm, I'm reflecting. This is what I do. But I'm reflecting on, you know, how often Obviously, you were going for the big win, which is your baby being born and and healthy. But talk about reflecting on the little wins. It's like each day was an accomplishment that you got through each day. And each little increment of her growth was a huge accomplishment. It's like really, if you think about, you know, what mindfulness or presence is, it's like it really is that ability to celebrate yes. these little things. And so often we're so lost in the big. Yep. It's like, what a reality check. I celebrated every single day and every single moment. And my mantra was every day pregnant is a good day. Every day pregnant is a good day. And something that I hadn't even shared yet is one of the women who I met through the PROM Facebook group, we connected through Facebook. We chatted. We I shared more about the comfort care program at Columbia. She ended up also coming to Columbia through our conversations and meeting Dr. Pavicini. So we spent 10 weeks together in the hospital. We had the same due date. We were under very similar circumstances. She was not pregnant with twins, but ruptured. And we had each other through this whole journey for 10 weeks in the hospital. And having a friend and a new friend, but someone who was like this instant best friend to go through this experience with 
And we, because we had the same due date, every Friday we turned another another week pregnant oh and we gosh. celebrated every Friday. We would have ice cream celebrations and pizza celebrations in the hospital. And then I had my social media celebrations because I was sharing my whole journey on social media. Wow. I had, you know, like thousands of cheerleaders were messaging me every single day. Like, yes, you did it. You made it another week. Like people waiting for my posts on Friday to announce that, you know, we had made it another week and what was going on. And like that kept me going. It's amazing. Oh my God. Wow. I love that. I love that you had this best friend, this someone to be, you know, like together with you through this. Yes. And we still text and talk every single day. <laughs> Amazing. I think you've posted pictures of the two of you oh, and your yes. babies. Oh, yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. And we, we made other other um, hospital floor mate friends who we're, we're still super close with. And, you so know, amazing. a lot of women had just, you know very traumatic stories. And, you know, you don't feel alone when you're on a floor with all of these women who are going through just the hardest, most traumatic pregnancies that you could ever imagine. And you have this support system of, of other women who get it. And that was just so, so helpful in these, in these moments to be together. And Caitlin and I actually laughed so much in the hospital and you would think we're just sitting there crying in our rooms. We just made the best of every single day. Yeah, like it, I, I, it's funny that you say that because I was going to make some sort of remark and then I was like, maybe it's not appropriate. But now that you just said that, I was going to be like, it's sort of like the worst, best version of like summer camp. Like yeah. almost how you're in like a bunk situation and you're just silly and you yeah. just talk about everything and whatever, yeah. you know, you're just bonding. Yeah. And and I feel like almost like a college dorm room, like with your freshman year roommate. No, it, like you're just kind of exploring like getting to know each other and being so silly and even in the face of something so difficult I mean that's the human spirit though yeah no absolutely yeah. we we really did and she, and Caitlin is just such a positive force and she was just so incredible to to, to have as part of both both of our journeys and now our little baby as well we'll, we'll get to grow up together and yeah, uh, so amazing and, and have each other so you were in the comfort care program for about 10 weeks And as you're getting closer to that 10 week point, which is how many weeks of your pregnancy? So I ended up um, being induced at 33 weeks, five days, delivering 33 weeks, six days. Wow. Okay. So the, wow. Okay. For some reason, going back into the story, I thought that you had her even smaller than that. But she actually made it. Yeah, she held on. And, you know, I probably could have gone longer. But at that point, by the time you hit 34 weeks, they because of the risk of infection when you're ruptured and you're so far along at that point, they say you're better off just delivering than, you know. Yeah. Staying pregnant. Okay. So but like I want to just like slow down for a second because we get to about 33 weeks to induce to have this baby that made it against so many odds. But you also have Emmy still inside of you. So I remember, I think this was the point when we hung out. This was the part where when you told me this, that I got emotional Mm. and it's happening now. (laughs) It's like, that's the part where I really get hit. It's like, how do you, how do you recover and yet celebrate from knowing that you have a new baby coming, but you also are going to have to see this baby that didn't make it and Mm. face both of it. I think for me, just as like a mother who's given birth twice, it's like I literally can't fathom that mm. moment. And that's where my heart just goes out to you and to this and to your husband and to this whole moment. So I just like, whew, that's Very the moment that gets me every time. 
you know, and I was so, so nervous for the birth because the first thing was, was she even going to be able to breathe? Like that yeah. was my first thought of everything was yeah. I just needed to know that she could breathe and that she was okay. And then it was once I know they're taking her and they're taking care of her. Now, how do we grieve and say goodbye to our other child? And we also didn't know what condition she would be in. Yeah. And that's, you know, again, going back to Facebook groups, you know, I was in another group of people who lost a child and were in similar situations to understand like what would the condition what would her condition be like yeah. and I was told by some people that sometimes the babies when they're lost between 17 and 20 weeks can actually be reabsorbed into the placenta mm -hmm. so that's actually what happened to Emmy so when when I delivered the placenta she was basically part and absorbed into the placenta. Wow. Okay. So we never got to actually see her, but we did have we did have a lot of those conversations with the social workers at the hospital because we didn't know what it was going to be and making plans and preparation for that moment right. and making sure that you know we had what we wanted to happen happen in that moment. So Wow. It was um, And there was no way for you to know it because there was no fluid you couldn't, couldn't see, see in an ultrasound. Yep. It was just yep. whatever it was going to be. Yep. Wow. So we did end up cremating the placenta. Mm. And that was important to me because okay. I still wanted to feel like I had Emmy with us and had a piece of her with wow. us. Yeah. That's amazing. So I wonder, I mean, is there a part of you that wishes you could have seen her? Or do you feel like it was better that it became more of like her spirit? I think now, like looking back at just how everything happened, I feel like that it happened that way for a reason because I actually wasn't sure if I wanted to see her or not. And, you know, I remember saying like, I definitely want to see her. Like she's our baby. I definitely want to see her. And my husband would say, I feel like you're going to be really traumatized if you see her. Yeah. So I think, you know, she just knew what was best and it happened the way, the way it happened. Wow. And then, you know, the, the big focus, you know, after became Molly became Molly and, yeah. and was she breathing and, you know, she didn't cry right when she came out. So I, and they put her on my chest and I, and the, we, we have this on video and, and in photos and you would think in that moment, I just want to hold this baby and she's finally here. And I was in that moment terrified because I didn't hear her scream. And I'm like, why are they putting her on my chest? Just take her and get her to scream and make sure she's breathing. So they put her on my chest and I just say to the nurse, is she okay? Is she okay? Just take her, just take her. Like I didn't want her. I wanted them to take her to be sure, sure that she was yeah. okay. And I wanted them to just tell me she was okay because I couldn't tell yeah. if she was breathing. So it took about a minute or so and they had to get all, you know, the fluid out from her. Ironically, somehow she had whatever she had <laughs> whatever fluid, her that they yeah. suck out. Um, and then I finally heard like a little, a little cry and they just kept saying she's great she's okay she's okay and I'm just bawling and saying like I knew it like I knew she would be okay and like that moment and I'm so grateful that you know somehow I remember at, at some point I'd handed my phone to someone right before I pushed and um, our social worker was there and she was taking video and our doula was actually taking photos and I'm so glad I just have this moment and experience captured because it was a long time leading up to, to that moment and Seriously. for her to be okay. And look, you know, Caitlin had her baby three days before, Torben three days before, and he was okay. Wow. So now, you know, Torben was okay. Of course, Molly was going to be okay. Like that was yeah. the only option. Like I just knew it. 
And my doctor, um, he had induced me the night before, but he had done an overnight, so he didn't deliver me. But I called him within like 30 minutes of her being born. I think I FaceTime him and I was like, she's here and she's breathing and she's fine. And I remember he was like, really? Like he just couldn't, he couldn't believe believe it. it. I hear him crying. I'm like, I told everyone, I told you guys my child would breathe. She would be okay. And she's perfect and amazing. And somehow she only spent two weeks in the NICU. Wow. And just had a little assistance the first week on some CPAP just so she didn't have to work as hard to breathe because she was a preemie. Yeah. And she is doing incredibly well, has no issues, had no fluid for 17 and a half weeks. And I fought for this child. We fought for this child. Everyone on social media fought for this child. Wow. And she's here because of Facebook and Instagram. (laughs) Wow. Molly for president. Yes. (laughs) I mean, really, I wonder what this girl's future is going to be, because talk about somebody who fought to be here and was meant to be here. Oh, my God. So some of my questions for you, I mean, and I I happen to be um, a person who's really fascinated by the topic of healing Mm -hmm. and trauma. It's something I spend a lot of time thinking about. It happens to be something that arrives on my podcast a lot. And I go into those subjects for whatever reason. It's like on my plate. And, you know, it's interesting. Like it hasn't been that long, Mm -hmm. actually, since you've been through this. And I think as somebody who has gone through my own losses and my own traumas, I look back and I think one year, two years, it's still so fresh. Mm. Now I I can look back on things that have happened. I'm like, it's over a decade. And I'm like, okay, I can have some reflection. Mm -hmm. So you're still not that far out from all of these really, really intense, profound experiences, both difficult and beautiful. And how they intertwine with each other. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the process of healing and the process of coming to terms with this journey that you've been on. You know, I've had medical challenges, I feel like, my entire life. I think I maybe shared this with you that I also have MS. And I have just, I feel like I've always just been dealing with stuff. And somehow... All of these experiences that I've had throughout my life, I've always said, how can I turn this into something positive? So I think a lot of my healing has come from, for some reason, I was dealt this hand and, you know, it's awful going through it in the moment. But if there's a way to help other people through my experience and my journey, like that's all I want to do, because I know how hard it was going through fertility and then going through this traumatic pregnancy and so many people helped me and my husband along the way how can I take what I've been through and continue to provide hope and inspiration to other people that are going through this because this is happening to people women and families every single day they're getting diagnosed with infertility or you know a complication in their pregnancy or as specific as what I had TTTS and PPROM how can I help and provide hope because there is hope and the answer might not always be just listening to the first doctor who gives you information it might be crowdsourcing information and trusting in your heart and fighting for your family but if I I can provide that to people. Like that's what I feel like is healing me. And also I have this beautiful, healthy child every single day. So she gives me so much, you know, perspective. And yes, I've been through all of this 
crap and shit and I wouldn't wish this upon anyone, but I'm so grateful every day. And I feel like she has helped me heal over these past few months because I have her and I know like every second of every traumatic, horrible, terrible moment that we went through. And there was a lot of them like every single day. Yeah, it was all worth it. And I just stayed very focused and very, I mean, very focused on staying positive because I know how important it is to train your mind and train your brain and you can will things to happen. I believe it. I do, too. I mean, now I know why you're also a successful business person, because (laughs) it's actually the same diligence and deliberate effort over and over and over again. I mean, I also just want to give you so much credit also. You know, anybody who comes onto your Instagram will see that you keep Emmy's spirit alive. Mm. She is a part of your life. You talk about her, you give voice to her and her beautiful spirit. And that's not easy to do Mm. because the easier thing is to not speak and is to hold it in that's where I think, you know, repressed emotion Mm -hmm. and trauma live and therefore all the manifestations of that in humanity. But you're doing it differently and you're you're sharing Mm -hmm. and you're keeping her alive. And I think that there's nothing more beautiful than Mm -hmm. that. Thank you. Look, I I learned the hard way. I used to keep things inside and that never worked for me. And Mm -hmm. it's when I was able to release and share that you're able to connect and move forward and release. And I just feel that's so, so important. It is so important. So I think almost anybody can relate to what it means to be in the thick of a pretty terrible situation or what could potentially be a really terrible situation. And we somehow have to put our mind where we need it to be to Mm -hmm. get through and to keep you know, your eye on the ball. And the ball in this case was healthy baby born. So was there like one thing that really you committed to or really helped you get through during those days in the hospital when you just needed to get to that point of that healthy baby being born? There was a few things that I did. And again, like I just knew all along through my fertility journey, through the pregnancy journey, I, regardless of all the things that were going wrong, I had to stay mentally strong and positive to get to the finish line and to have Molly born healthy. When I ruptured, I followed this PPROM protocol. So I was drinking a gallon of water every single day. I was taking all of these vitamins that were recommended. I was eating as much as possible now because I was told to get Molly as big as possible because she'd have a better chance. I was doing all of these like physical things that I could do. And then I was making sure my room, my surroundings were as positive as possible. So I was um, diffusing doTERRA essential oils every single day in my, yes, in my hospital room. (laughs) So nurses and doctors would come in there like, is this a spot? And I'm like, yes, it is. Yeah. (laughs) Because I, again, wanted to stay as calm and relaxed as possible. And then I spoke to Molly every single day and I wrote in a journal every single day to her. I wrote letters to Molly every single day that I was in the hospital and I would tell her in this journal and I would tell her talking to her every single night before I went to sleep. I would say, you just got to hold on. We're going to Disney World in December. We already have a trip booked. So I was just very focused and I would look out my hospital window and It's depressing being in a hospital. It's not an enjoyable experience being in a hospital. But I would look out the window and I would just visualize it being Disney World 
and the beach sometimes, but mostly Disney World and just us all being there together and enjoying that moment. So when we finally took our trip to Disney in December because we went on this trip. Oh, my gosh. And just being there like outside the the castle in the Magic Kingdom and taking a photo. And I was like, this this is it. This was the moment that I told Molly we would have every single day. So I think she's here because she really wanted to go to Disney. <laughs> did you put her in the mini ears? Of course. Of course you did. Yes. It's amazing. I love that. Yeah. It just, it really does show the power of that mindset and that commitment yeah. and, and like the mantra, we're yeah. going to Disney. Yes. We're going to Disney. And there you are. Yep. Made it happen. So just put your mind to it and focus and just believe and have hope. Just have hope. It is so important. I'm convinced that most troubles in the world can be healed if women are sticking together. Yes. It's really true. I mean, no offense to the men. We love them, too, and we do need them. But there is something incredibly powerful when women are banding together, supporting each other. There's a level of connectivity and sensitivity Mm -hmm. that I think is at the core of possibility. Um, I learned a really interesting fact in a conversation I had yesterday with a woman who's in the cannabis industry, um, but she's at the core, an environmentalist. Mm. And she told me, this is related to you. She told me that uh, the cannabis plant, that any plant that becomes CBD or whatever is the healing component has to be a female plant. That it's only the female plants that have the healing components that we use for all of the, you know, CBD, hemp, products that are now used for inflammation, for calming anxiety, for a sense of ease in all these systems. Um, And that, in fact, the plants that are male, that have the seed, (laughs) um, are actually capable of destroying an entire crop and have to be (laughs) kept away from the female plants. I say all of this to say that the female life force has incredible energy to heal. And it even shows itself in plant life. That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. But it's part of your story. Yes. Look what these women did for you and what you're all doing for each other. I just love Facebook groups so much. I can't. (laughs) I owe my my daughter to these Facebook groups. I I really, I mean, every single day. And I still go back and I post in these groups and, you know, share hope. You know, I'll go in there every couple of days and and comment and help encourage women who are going through things right now because people did that. People did that for me. People did that for us. And we just have to continue to to help others. Yes, we do. Well, I think you're amazing, Stephanie. I really do. I can't wait to meet Molly. Oh, yes, we have to have a I feel like I kind of know her. (laughs) From Um, Instagram. (laughs) Yeah, this needs to happen. And I know that I do know because we share a lot of community as well that you are a voice of positivity for this community and it's very necessary. So I honor you and thank you for letting me be part of you telling this really important story. Thank you for, for helping me share it. It was definitely a long time coming that I was, you know, putting off until I really felt ready. And like I said, when I met you, I knew, I knew that this was going to be the, the right conversation and, and the way to do it. So it's so amazing. But you. I'm the one that cried. No. <laughs> I, I do 
did a lot of crying. I did a lot of crying yesterday. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. We yeah. sometimes when we're like sharing our story, we we speak it from our strong yeah. space, and yeah. that's okay. And I I held the space for the tears yeah. for today. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Steph. 